0: Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you very much, guys, for uh, leading us in prayer, as well as reading the scripture passage for us. And by now, I suspect that uh, it's pretty familiar to those of you who are tuning in regularly because this is the third week in a row uh, that we have uh, read Psalm 32 and used it as our text for our message. And the reason is, is because, of course, we're in the midst of a series on confession and forgiveness. This is a peerless psalm on the act of confession, and we've been using it and looking at it in depth to unpack various aspects of confession uh, in order that we can understand this biblical teaching better. Um, You know, Lord Byron, who was an English poet, he once wrote that the weak alone repent. Yeah, just making sure my mic's on. Um, And you know, that's that's a good statement to summarize how a lot of people think about confession it is a sign of weakness and it is in fact even an act of weakness because they understand confession though they would never verbalize it this way they sort of in a tacit unconscious way believe that confession is disempowering and it is shame inducing it is essentially life draining and therefore not only is it a sign of weakness but it leads to weakness and so for many many people The trick to life is to avoid it at all costs. And in fact, because it's so traumatic, you only do it as a last resort. Question, are they right? Are people right when they think that way? And actually, the answer is yes, in a way, at least. Uh, The Bible says that there is a kind of joy that takes, or sorry, a kind of confession that takes away joy. That is life draining, that leads to death, in fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7. He calls it worldly sorrow. And it is ultimately empty because it is false. The main concern, as we saw last week, with false confession is the self. You experience pain, you want to relieve that pain. One of the easiest and quickest ways to do that is to go through this process of confession. And so, even the act of confession is ultimately self-centered. But the Bible says that there's another kind of confession that is not, doesn't, doesn't lead to death, that is not ultimately uh, empty and self-centered. It's called godly confession. And it, Paul says, leads to salvation and leaves no regret. In other words, it is life-giving. It is empowering. It enables you to leave the past behind you and not be haunted with it. You see, worldly sorrow, you know one of the problems with worldly sorrow? It's that it doesn't actually deal with the issue that raises the sorrow in the first place. Let me explain this. Hebrews chapter 12, records, uh, uh, is a commentary, I should say, on the life uh, and the consequences of the life of Esau. Now, you go back into Genesis in the Old Testament, Esau was the oldest son of Isaac. He had a brother named Jacob. And one of the stories of their lives is, is that when, uh, when Esau was incredibly hungry and was behaving as though he thought he was dying of starvation... Jacob uh, offered him a bowl of stew and said, now, if you want this bowl of stew, you have to give me your inheritance. You have to give give me your birthright. And Esau, in a moment of absolute foolishness, he says, fine, whatever. What good is my birthright if I'm dead anyway? Give me the bowl of stew. And he realizes afterwards what a complete fool he was. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17, it says this. Afterwards, as you know, when he, that is Esau, wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Now, the author of the Hebrews is saying he was so remorseful. He felt absolutely terrible. He sought this blessing with tears. He had lost it, and he felt awful about it, and everything... Uh, everything everything connected to it. And so he, he, with tears, tried to get it back, but he never could, and he never got over it. Because you see, he was worried about the thing that he lost. He was worried about himself. He was not worried about the fact that he had broken covenant with his father or with God. No, he was worried about him. And if you do this, If this is the way you come at confession, if this is the way you understand the things you've done wrong in your life and the things that you need to confess uh, uh, for, if you are concerned with yourself and concerned with the consequences and concerned with getting back to where you were, if that's what you are concerned with, you will never be able to actually stop the pain. Okay? You will be ruled by your history. You will carry this burden with you. Oftentimes, when people say, I just can't forgive myself, this is actually what they mean. It's because the focus is wrong. It's not on what I've... It's not on the sinfulness of the sin. It's not on the severity of the offense itself and what it's done to the other. It's what it's done to me. Now what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the elements of true confession because this true confession does not lay burdens upon us and, and cause us to live with the chains of shame and guilt into our lives and carry the, 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 the shame and guilt of our past offenses into the future. No, Paul says it leaves no regret. How in the world does it do that? That's what we're going to try to figure out today today as we understand what the elements of true confession are. And the first thing is, again, if you look at verse 5 of Hebrews, or sorry, not Hebrews, of uh, Psalm 32, it says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I acknowledged my sin to you. Now, this is huge. Remember, we talked about this last week. True confession acknowledges that sin is first and foremost a sin against God. Now, last week I spent a great deal on that, Um, but it's so huge, there's more to it that we need to get to this week. You see, there's there's an important aspect to that that we couldn't talk about last week, and it's this. It is so important to understand that our sin is a violation of God's law and a violation of God's love because it enables us to distinguish between true and false guilt. And this is the first thing we have to do to truly confess. We need to be able to distinguish between true and false guilt. There are true guilt feelings and there are false guilt feelings. When you do something wrong or you say something, or sorry, when you do something or you say something, Sometimes you should feel guilty for it, even though you don't. And sometimes you shouldn't feel guilty for it, even though you do. We all know people who have very sensitive consciences. These are people who who feel guilt even when they shouldn't feel guilt, even when the guilt isn't legitimate. They, they've said something, and they're worried about having offended you, or they forgot to do something, and they feel so terrible for that, or they, they say no to something that, they, that really it was wise probably for them to say no, but they have a hard time saying no, and therefore they feel terrible for saying no, and they feel like they've let other people down, etc. And they're always feeling guilty about something. Martin Luther actually was this kind of person. Martin Luther... Uh, who kind of kicked off the Reformation he was a Catholic monk and uh, as a Catholic monk one of his uh, 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 one of his rituals was to go to confession and at confession he would he would list his sins and then he would re- receive absolution from his confessor but because he had such a sensitive constant conscience, Luther would spend hours sometimes confessing his sins with his confessor a man by the name of Johann von Staupitz and von Staupitz, uh, said at one point, he says, you know, Luther, it's almost as though you call every fart a sin. Everything's a sin to some people. And of course, the opposite is true. On the other hand, there are, there are people who think that Almost nothing seems to be a sin. Almost nothing seems to be a violation of of any code of morality. And sometimes those are people who are extremely relativistic, meaning they say, look, there's no right or wrong in this world, and therefore every person has to decide what's right or wrong for themselves. They need to be true to themselves, and I am true to myself. And therefore, anything that that others uh, lay upon me as some kind of failure or shortcoming or, dare I say, sin... I, I don't believe it because I'm the one who decides whether what I've done or said is a, a violation. And then, of course, there are other people who just, by all kinds of, for all kinds of reasons, they have very calloused hearts or seared consciences. Uh, sometimes we call them sociopaths. The question is, how do you know? How do you know whether something is actually right, actually wrong, whether you ought to be guilty or, or shouldn't be guilty? We need some kind of rule. We need a standard. We need a straight edge. When you have a straight edge and you put something crooked up against it, you can see the crookedness of the thing, you see. Where do we go to find that? We go to God. Because God is the lawgiver. Because he's the eternal one who has not just given us the physical laws of the universe, but he's given us the spiritual laws of the universe and the moral laws of the universe as well. And if you take your guilt to the Word of God and you discover that despite what your parents say, despite what the culture says, despite what your neighbors say or your friends say, if the Word of God says you're not guilty, you can pitch that guilt. But of course, you can go to the Word of God and no matter what your parents say, no matter what the culture says, no matter what your friends say or your neighbors say, if the Word of God says you are guilty, then you are and you need to confess it. Now, I'm going to give you a long but important application of this. Because I would be remiss not to speak to this as a, a minister of the gospel. You know, right now, if you're watching the news, if you're reading the news, if you're connecting with the news in any way at all, you, you know there has been a, a surge of protests, largely, around racial inequality. Now, these are happening in the U.S., but they're happening in Canada as well as elsewhere around the world. And what these protests are calling for is an end to systemic racism. Now, that's a difficult term, understandably, because the problem with systemic racism is it means that there is a, there is racism built into the system of our society. And that means that it often runs sort of below the surface, subconsciously and invisibly. And therefore, it's somewhat difficult for us to be able to say, well, there it is, and this is who's responsible. It's hard to kind of identify who to blame for it. And so what you're seeing more and more is calls for things like police reform, education reform, political reform, economic reform, because more and more people are starting to recognize that the system that we live in itself creates and maintains inequality in nearly every aspect of life for people of color. One of the terms that you will hear uh, right now is white privilege. And what it's meant to do is to describe in some way the advantages that white people have because of their race living in this system. Now, the causes of systemic racism and Certainly, the cures of systemic racism are very, very complex. But to say, based upon what I'm able to learn, and I've done a lot of learning this past week in this area, but to say that this doesn't exist at all is simply incorrect. Now, we live in an extremely individualistic age. We think about ourselves almost primarily here in the Western world as autonomous, individual people. And we think of ourselves almost as disconnected from other people or from communities of people or from society as a whole. We only think about ourselves as, as individuals. And so when white Christians who are not themselves racist on an individual level When they hear minority groups say that they are responsible to some degree for systemic racism, what they want to say is, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Not me. I I don't do this. I don't participate in this. I, I was not there during slavery. I was not around during the residential school system. And in fact, I actually abhor all those things. But I'm not actually guilty of committing those sins. Now, I confess that for quite a while, that was my reaction, for a long time. I would get defensive when people said, look, you're part of the problem because you're part of the system. And I would feel unjustly accused, and I would would say, no, 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 that's not me. I don't, I don't, I would say foolish things, sometimes about not seeing race, or not participating in racism and that kind of thing. I've learned to discover that I wasn't, because of that, I was not actually able to hear what uh, racialized people or minority groups in our community were trying to explain to me. So what must I do with that? Now that it's once again at the forefront of our society's uh, uh, consciousness, and I'm not saying every aspect of the protests is correct and accurate and should be lauded and should be, uh, supported by the Christian community? Not at all. That's not what I'm saying. I said the causes and cures for this are extremely complicated. But I do know this. I need to go back to Scripture to test this notion of my participation in systemic racism against the Bible. Now, the Bible, of course, very clearly teaches that racism is, is a sin. But does it also teach that people in majority groups share in corporate responsibility for systemic racism. Again, we're individualistic, and so we don't think about it that way. But, you know, the Bible is not so individualistic. The Bible understands that we are part of a community, whether we've chosen it or not, as part of the human race, and as part of our own personal ethnicity, and as part of our own country of origin, and as part of our own communities in which we live, and as part of our own families, we live in community. And therefore, there is a corporate aspect even to our responsibility. You can see this in many places in Scripture. I'll give you one example. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is living in Babylon. And in Daniel 9, we read that he, it it records for us a prayer of confession that Daniel prayed on behalf of his ancestors. Now, the sin that they were guilty of was idolatry, worshiping false gods. You read the book of Daniel, you know that you cannot accuse Daniel of worshiping false gods. Maybe he was a lot of things, but he certainly was not an idolater. And yet, what Daniel understood was this. The culture of his people that produced the sins of the past was the culture that he was still a part of. He was still part of that system. So his culture was the culture that produced this sin of idolatry in the past, and he was still part of that system. And as such... He could sense, he could feel that he was, he was, even if an unwilling one, he was a participant in this system and so he confesses that. How do, you, how do we fix systemic racism? That's a really good question. I'm going to provide some re- resources for you through, uh, through the vlog and maybe on the website that go deeper into this issue. But there's no doubt that whites in our culture, they bear some responsibility. But that's not even my point. Ultimately, my point is this. It's the Bible who tells us that. It's not public pressure. It's not public protests. It's not pressure through social media on Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that. It's the scriptures. It's the word of God that convicts my heart so that I know it's true guilt and it needs to be dealt with even if I don't like it. That's why it's so important to see all sin as ultimately about our relationship with God because he's the true lawgiver and you can trust him that when he points out sin to you that it is truly what he calls it to be. Now, I know that was a really long, long section on the first point and we're going to go more quickly through the other ones, but we got to face this, friends. Brothers and sisters, I'm not telling you again that everything out there is legit, and that's one of the problems. It's hard because there are different opinions and different studies and different interpretations, and it can be extremely complicated. But we cannot just ignore it and say, that's not my problem. I live in small-town Canada. We're 99.9% white, and all my relations are too, and therefore I'm not a participant in this problem at all. All right, let's move quickly through the remaining points, all right? The second thing we have to do, once you are able to determine true versus false guilt and you determine we've got true guilt on our hands here, you need to recognize the, the damage it has caused. When, when it says in verse 5 that David confessed his transgressions to the Lord, when you go to the New Testament, the word confession is a very interesting Greek word, homologeo. Okay, homologeo, which means say the same thing. And what it means is, is that we need to see this, the event, the, the, the infraction, the, whatever, the offense, whatever you want to call it, from the perspective of the one who's been offended. We need to be able to get to the place where we can say the same thing about the sin that they do or to put it another way we need to be able to agree with their assessment see we cannot you're not truly confessing when you say look i know what i did what i did was wrong you're right i'm wrong let's just forget it i'm sorry let's move on no you have to feel it's called empathy which means you have to listen you see even if you don't like what you're hearing. You can't just run past this part of it. You have to do the emotional work of being able to say the same thing, that put yourself in their shoes. Let me give you an example in terms of confessing to God himself. Like this is, what we tend to do is we tend to say, look, if I hurt you, I'm sorry. If I disappointed you, I'm sorry. Or we say things like, I'm sorry you're so upset these are complete balderdash forms of confession. They don't take ownership and they don't do the emotional work of understanding things from the perspective of the one who's been hurt. You got to go to God. Let's say you need to confess to God and you need to go to him. You got to be able to go to him and you need to say something like this. Took me a long time to write this. Shows just how difficult this is. Father, I can hardly imagine what it must be like to be you. You created me out of love. You blessed me with life. You saved me from my sin through Jesus' death on the cross. You've given me more good things than I could ever imagine. You are constantly moving toward me in love. And yet, I go through so much of my life with hardly an interest in you. Barely a thought of your goodness or grace or beauty. I can't understand what it must be like to treat someone so well, so graciously, so lovingly, and be so mistreated by them. Have promises made that are broken time and time again. I'm trying to understand that. Please forgive me. One of the reasons you need to be able to do this is because sometimes when you've hurt somebody badly, and you want to say sorry to them, they're they're having a hard time hearing it. They need to process. They need time to work through their hurt. And you'll understand that better when you do the work of homologo, when you don't try to just get past it, but you actually try to understand it from their perspective. Okay, third. Once you've been able to do that, you need to do the third thing. You need to own your stuff. Paul says, or David says again, he says, I did not, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. Now, what happened when he was not acknowledging his sin and covering up his iniquity? It says in verse three, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Did you know that... A guilty conscience can be extremely bad for your health. Uh, Go on WebMD and put in guilty conscience and you'll discover that things like headaches and backaches can be the result of a guilty conscience. Um, Cardiovascular disease, gastrointestinal disorder, even immune deficiency can be linked to having a guilty conscience. Now, I know there are some people who don't have that. Psychopaths can sleep very well at night, but many of us can't. Thank God many of us can't. You need to own it. You need to own it, which means you don't justify or excuse what you've done. You don't say to a person or to God, look, you know, I was under a lot of stress. You don't minimize it. Ah, man, you always make such a big deal out of everything if it's a big deal to them it should be a big deal to you you don't blame shift you don't say i know i do this etc but you got to understand the home i grew up in if you had the mother that i had you know you'd be like this too and you certainly don't blame share you don't say to the other person well if you had done then i wouldn't have done quick story uh One of my children, this happened with one of my children. They were quite young at the time. Uh, They came in the house and they were very upset with me, probably around five years old or so, extremely upset with me. And they're kind of yelling at me and they're crying and they're in pain and all this kind of stuff. We're like, what happened? What happened? What happened? Oh, I dropped a rock on my foot and it hurts like crazy. And like, why are you so mad at me for that? Well, if you didn't leave the rock on the deck, I wouldn't have done that. You see? Blame shifting. True confession means to take full ownership. It means to understand that you are fully responsible for the things that you have done. Look, I like to do this in marriage counseling as well. You have a water bottle and you shake the water bottle and water comes out of it, right? Now, if I ask you, why did water come out of the water bottle, most of the time your initial answer will be, well, because you shook it. But listen carefully to the question. Listen to the the inflection or or the emphasis. Why did water come out of the bottle? Well, water came out of the bottle because water was in the bottle. If you react angrily to things, it's not because somebody put anger in you and, and you just lost it. No, it's because that's what's in you, you see? And if you say to yourself, what what happens when you're only partially wrong? What do you do when you're only partially wrong? Let's say you're only 40% wrong and the other person is 60% wrong. What do you do in a situation like that? You own your 40% and you shut up about the 60. That's their problem. They have to own that. Now, when you do these things, friends, when you do these things... The Bible teaches that there's no regret. You forgave the guilt of my sin, David says. In other words, your culpability is taken away. So that in verse 11, the very last verse of the psalm, David can say, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. You can rejoice, you can find joy. It is life-giving. The chains, the burden, the weight is removed. Paul Tripp says this, he says, many of us carry around our sins in metaphorical backpacks of regret, bruising our spiritual shoulders and breaking the back of our faith. But you see, when you truly confess, friends, God takes the backpack of your sin off and he rolls it away in the empty tomb, never to be remembered again. He lifts the burden from you. And you can feel the weight being lifted. So do it. Truly confess what's stopping you. (laughs) Yeah, right. So many people don't confess this way, whether it's to God, honestly, or to other people, certainly. They're still carrying their sin around on their shoulders in a backpack. Why can't they let it go? One more thing. You need supernatural power for this, okay? You notice in verse 11, the very last line, David says, sing all you who are upright in heart. Now, isn't that weird? (laughs) All you who are upright in heart. I mean, David is confessing his sin of adultery, of the cover-up subsequently, and then of the murder ultimately. Like these are some serious sins. And he, is this him calling himself upright now? How in the world can he, where does he get the gall, the nerve to describe himself as the righteous and the upright in heart? How can he tell himself that? Well, this is the last thing. You need to remember God's declaration. Because you see, David doesn't call himself that in a sense. It was God who did that. All the way back up in verses 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not account against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. The Lord didn't count his sin against him. He covered it. And that's why he's upright. That's why he's righteous. You see, School's over, right? But remember the olden days when you went to school, kids, and you'd have to take a test? Imagine if you, you, you took a test and you got an F on the test, big, ugly, red F on your paper. And the teacher says to you, you know what? I'm not going to count this greed against you. I'm not going to count this towards your mark. What would you say? Well, you'd say, hallelujah, that's good news, right? That's amazing. Well, do you see that the gospel is that that God declares you upright and just and righteous? Not because of what you've done, but because what Jesus has done. Because you see, Jesus, when he lived his life on earth, he aced the test. He got a perfect grade on the test for you. And when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for you so that your F, your failure, could be wiped away and his straight A could be accredited and given to you. So it's not... David declaring that he's the righteous one. You don't have to convince yourself that you've passed. No, God is the one who tells you that you've passed, that gives you the perfect grade. He's the one who declares you upright and righteous. And so you can hold your head high because you're not trying to prove yourself or trying to argue with God, trying to show him that you deserve his blessing in some weird way. No, 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 you understand that you're completely undeserving, but you receive his grace and you rest in it. Now when you let that sink in friends you will be quick to confess. You will own your sin. You will. You'll be able to admit it and you'll be able to confess it and you'll be able to be free. Even if you're a white person feeling unjustly accused of participating in a system that you didn't even really know existed you can say you know what? I've not been part of the solution. I've actually kind of, because it doesn't affect my life personally or the people around me personally, I haven't given it an awful lot of thought. I haven't been active to at least gain awareness and I haven't been proximate with those who are, who are suffering. It's been a sin of omission at the very least, but I own that. And I receive God's forgiveness and now I can seek to change. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and thank you that there is a path toward being free from the bondage of our sin and experiencing your life giving forgiveness through true confession. Father, give us the strength of the gospel to be weak in ourselves, open and honest so that we can experience your forgiveness, we can leave that guilt that some of us have been carrying around for a really, really long time. Even though we're Christians, we're carrying it around, Father. We can leave it behind. We can let it sit in the empty tomb that Jesus left and know that it has been buried forever. Oh, God, do a work of grace in us. And as we think through Racial, racial reconciliation. May, may we Christians, particularly those of majority uh, culture, we, may we not shy away from these conversations, hard conversations, sometimes accusatory conversations. May we not be afraid of them, but may we have ears to hear and listen closely to our brothers and sisters about their stories. And may we bring about the equality that your gospel calls for. In Jesus' name we pray,
0: amen.